Hello and welcome to the Dismantle Racism Show. I'm so delighted that you have chosen to join me today. You know, the goal of this show is to educate and eradicate and dismantle racism. And we do that by really having guests on the show who have such phenomenal experiences uh, personally and professionally regarding the topics that we talk about on each show. So my hope is that you will listen to the stories of the guests who are on here. You will be encouraged to think about what it is that you can do to um, advocate for racial and social justice. Again, you don't have to do what my guests are doing. I say this all the time. You don't have to do what I'm doing, but find something that's based on your gift, based on what you offer to the world and say, this is what I'm going to do to make a difference. Because even the small things that we do, I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me about um, a fundraiser she had done for her college. And she said that she just encouraged people to give as much as they could and to give towards a particular award. And she said, as she did it, they raised the money and she went on about her business basically. But then when they had a ceremony for one of their previous presidents, there were people who told her, I donated because you called me. I donated because of what you said to me. She's one person working to raise money for her institution, but look at the impact she made. So I tell you this story because you too can make a difference in dismantling racism. Think about your skills, your knowledge, your ability. How can you use that to make a difference in the world? Such a need out here for social justice issues whether it's based on race, sexuality, age, uh, ableism, whatever the case may be. And I guarantee you, even in those areas that you don't think race has something to do with it, there's an intersectionality. So I just want to encourage you to do what you can. I also want to invite you, if you've not done so, please subscribe to the show. You can find it on your favorite streaming uh, platforms, as well as seeing me here on Talk Radio NYC as we record live on Thursday mornings. But I want to encourage you to be a part of making uh, the show and, and the circulation of the show reach an audience that's far and wide. Don't just keep it to yourself. And as always, I would really appreciate if you would comment uh, on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, wherever you are, comments on the show. If you have questions, we will make sure that we are trying to answer those questions. And if you have an idea for a guest to be on the show, send them my way. You can go to www.sacredintelligence.com and send me a message there. As always, to get us grounded and centered on the show that we're going to do today, I just want to ask us if we would to simply close our eyes, if you're able to, and just begin to be present with the moment, to be present with your breathing, what's going on in your mind. And I invite you to slowly try to release whatever it is that's bothering bothering you today, concerning you, consuming your time, just release it for the next hour and breathe in and out and set the intention that you're going to listen for clarity, listen for understanding, listen for direction in your own life. Just breathe in and out connecting with your feelings, what you're feeling like in your body. And take note of that. Breathe in and out. Connecting with those that are around you. Connecting with the other people who are listening to this podcast. Knowing that we are all trying to advocate for racial equity. Know that you're not alone in your quest. So as you connect with all of those people, begin to connect with your own 
personal supporters, the people who guide you, the people who mentor you, the people who help you stand tall and give gratitude for those people. And as you're giving gratitude for those present day people, give gratitude for the advocates who came before you. The people who helped to change a system so that you would have the freedoms that you have now. The people we know about, the people who are public figures, but also the people we don't know about. So just for a moment, express gratitude for them. And then I want you to breathe in and out and just express gratitude for yourself. You are enough. You are brilliant. You are capable. You're wise. And just know that what you do matters. And as you meditate and breathe on the gratitude that you feel for yourself, keep in mind that the power of one contributes to the power of community. Now I want you to take a deep breath in and slowly release it. And we say, and so it is, Ashe and Amen. You may open your eyes. I hope you're feeling grounded and centered for the conversation that we're going to have today. We're going to be talking today about first-generation college students and the intersectionality of their identity as it relates to socioeconomic status, race, gender, immigrant status, sexual orientation. We're hoping that we'll get a chance to talk about some of that intersectionality because we have so much that we want to talk about. But today we're really gonna take a look at how are first-generation students supported? What can we do better with supporting them? And we really wanna talk about what's the narrative that we hold because oftentimes, the institution and other people think that they're doing first-generation students a favor. And that's, of course, it's wonderful to become educated. It's wonderful to have uh, to have to not pay if that is the case for first-generational students. But what we lack when we do that, we take on this sort of um, this, this savior complex when we do that. And we don't think about the social capital that first-generation students bring to the table. So today, we're going to be talking about that. And I'm delighted today because we have a returning guest, Truth Hunter, who came on in July. And when she was on in July, she, she came from a whole different perspective. She was talking about West African dance and what that could do for the spirit, the soul, the healing. But she's a multifaceted woman. And so today, Truth, is here to talk about first-generation students. So I'm going to just read a little bit of her bio to you, which is a little different than what she had before. She was raised in Oakland, California. And in 2003, she journeyed, journeyed to South Hadley, Massachusetts to attend Mount Holyoke College. There, she studied critical social thought with a concentration in post-colonial studies. Within this field, she examined how people of African descent reinvent their identities in the aftermath of slavery and colonialism. After graduating, she pursued a career in educational advocacy and worked directly with low-income youth who would be the first in their families to pursue higher education. To take her work to the next level, she decided to study higher education and student affairs at the University of Connecticut. While in graduate school, she researched how first-generation students develop resilience to successfully reach their educational goals. 
Truth continued her advocacy for underrepresented populations by serving in the role of Director of Race and Ethnicity Programs at Connecticut College. Additionally, Truth Hunter is an adjunct faculty member at Eugene O'Neill Theater Institute in Waterford, Connecticut, and teaches a semester-long course on implicit bias. Over the last 10 years, Truth has facilitated numerous social justice workshops for students, staff, and faculty at colleges and universities throughout the Northeast. Currently, Truth is a doctoral student in the Department of Educational Leadership at the University of Connecticut. Her research focuses on uh, decon de de basically decolonizing um, equitable classroom practices for faculty, intergroup dialogue, and embodied pedagogy. That's a mouthful there, Truth. In fact, I don't think I even said everything uh, that's listed here. So, um, Truth. I just wanna welcome you to the show. And I just am so appreciative that you're here today because I know working on a PhD program, having done that, how you're stretched for time. So it is an honor to have you on the show again. Thank you so much for being here and your time. And so truth, you have to unmute yourself there. Thank you. I come with so much gratitude. It's a pleasure to be here a second time around. So Truth, we're just going to uh, get into it. I know we're going to have to uh, take a break in, in just a few minutes, but before we do, Truth, you know, I, I find you to be so amazing. And I just want to say that just like, you know, reading your bio, but experiencing you because I've known you for a long time. I knew you when yeah. you were working at Connecticut College uh, in the work that you did there. And I can say you put your all into every situation that you're doing and you stay committed to justice, equity, healing, helping first gen students out all the time. And so uh, I, I'm just grateful for the work that you do. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen when Dr. Truth Hunter <laughs> Thank you. comes on the scene. So Truth, you know, right before the break, because I know we have to take one in just a little sure. bit, but you, maybe you could begin to tell us a little bit about why are you so interested in this work? And, 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 and it's a minute. So I'll tell you what, we'll go to break because we're, okay. because he's giving us signals that it's time for a break in just about 30 seconds. So when we come back, tell me what brings you to this work? Why want, Why do you want to work with first-gen students? And so we'll pick up on that after the break. This is the Dismantle Racism Show. I am your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a high-achieving, growth-oriented leader? Are you interested in developing your authentic leadership while creating a healthy, inclusive workplace? Hi, I'm Dr. Mara Brathu, host of The Hard Skills on talkradio.nyc at 1 p.m. Eastern on Fridays, where we discuss how leaders develop the hard skills needed to make a greater impact. We interview experts, have live coaching, and tackle these challenges. Listen to The Hard Skills on Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape driving companies from the startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and Intangify your business today. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
We're back with my guest today, Truth Hunter. And Truth, I I gave you a question right before the break that I want us to focus on. But before I do that, because I want to do justice to you. When I was reading your bio, I did not say that your research focuses on decolonial audio ethnography. And I'd love for you to explain that because your research, you're looking at classroom practices, all of these other things are important. I want to hear about that just for a second. Will you enlighten our audience with what that means? Um, But you have to unmute yourself. Yes, thank you. So decolonial autoethnography is a form of methodology in education in which you look very deeply at your life experiences Mm. and you connect it with um, decolonial theory. So Mm. early in my doctoral journey, my advisor invite, well, actually, right before I became a doctoral student, my advisor invited me to be one of a a panel of of educators and scholars around decolonial ethnography. I hadn't been exposed to it at all. And she wanted it to be performance-based. So I represented dance. We had another person who represented spoken word. She also did some poetry. And then another member of our four-person team she did like a mixture of like media and also some of her experiences as a dancer. So what we were doing was we were bringing the arts to a very like academic conference. And we each did our performances and we connected connected it to um, decolonial theory. So Mm -hmm. after we completed our performances and we got feedback at this higher education association conference, people were saying, actually, you're embodying theory, and you need to write more about it. So we we wrote an an article based upon Maya Angelou's book um, Mm -hmm. called We Know Why the Caged Bird Sings in the Academy. And we used Maya Angelou's book to make a conceptual framework to analyze our our arts-based performances. So in a nutshell, what autoethnography is, is an opportunity to do some deep excavation on your personal journey, but you connect the personal to the structural. Oh, I never forget that your experiences with oppression or the ways that you overcome oppression are always deeply connected to the structural and the ideological and the macro levels of our society. Yes. Oftentimes when we hear narratives, because we live in a society that upholds individualism, even when it's positive, I've overcame this, I was the first, there's a lot of eyes, right? So what decolonial autoethnography helps us to do is what is that personal story and how does it connect to the structural? And as we know, in the um, America is a settler colonial um, yeah. implant, okay? Yeah. Um, it's capitalist. Those are the historical streams of our society. They don't go away with time. Right, they and what I love about this, it's so so what you're saying is really how you live your life though, how, how you've done your work. So as we hear a bit of your story today, even as we're looking at, uh, how you came into this work of first gen, you're actually still putting it into practice with, with what you're doing, the way you navigate the world, but also the ways in which you support other people uh, who are navigating the world. And so I can't wait uh, to yeah. see what Dr. Truth is going to be doing uh, after this. So now let's get back to your interests in um, first generational students. So tell us how you became, you know, so um, passionate about this. Yeah, th- th- thank you so much for this question. First of all, first the first generation identity, the first generation status for many years was invisible. This conversation we're having around first generation college students is relatively new. Mm-hmm. Like within, I would say like the last 10 years, institutions have been creating first generation centers, first-generation programs, first-generation mentoring, first-generation research. So for years, we just sort of missed it, 
right? It was treated as invisible. We thought it was class. We thought it was race. Yeah. But what I love about the first generation college experience is all of those things, mm-hmm. right? And you can't really box it in as being on um, one specific form of oppression or one specific type of experience. It's deeply intersectional in nature. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes um, uh, the first generation college experience becomes racialized. Mm-hmm. People automatically equate students of color as being first generation college students, but we have to be careful there. That's not always the case. Well, exactly. And in addition to it not being true, there are a lot of pe- white students who are also say first. that. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of white students who are first generation college students as well. And that's really important to highlight because we know that it's intersectional, but we don't want to just make it just a people of color thing. And that's important because what has been attached to that is that these students of color who are first gen are coming into higher education with a deficit. So we're attaching this deficit narrative specifically to racialize students. And that's not necessarily the case. There are a lot of first-generation college students who are white students as well. Another thing about first-generation, oh, oh please. On. Because, because you're, you're, you're giving us the gamut of first-generation. Yes. My question to you was, how did you become so passionate with, yes. with this work, right? Absolutely, my own experience. It was, to be completely honest, in high school, it was just like straight up my dream to go to college. It wasn't like it's the 13th grade or, I mean, I watch different world every day before. I I mean, I was fascinated by college and um, always loved to learn. And I always had something within me where I felt like I was it was my right to have a high quality education, considering that I came from a, a failing public school district, Oakland. So as I was graduating, I remember my AP social science teacher telling us, you all are about to miss a bullet because the state is about to take over the district. And when the state takes over the district, that means the district has failed. Essentially. Right, right. So that's where I come from. (laughs) But I always love to learn. And Mm -hmm. that passion for learning opened so many doors for me. So Mm -hmm. my counselor knew that. And he was in touch with Mount Holyoke College. And they were looking to recruit women of color. Mm -hmm. And he thought of me. Mm -hmm. And I went to visit Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. So I'm a young black girl from the hood of Oakland. I show up to South Hadley, Massachusetts at an- New England is no joke. New England elite institution. I had no idea what any of those things meant, but Mm. all I knew is that I had the right, the human right to have a high quality education considering what I came from, from K to 12, right? Fighting for an education. There for a second. Because you've said it twice that you had the human right to have it. That's right. What I love about you saying that is because often people will assume it based on class, based on race, that you don't deserve to be there. In fact, I had had a, a, a white woman say to me, I think I've said this on the show before. She was talking about her daughter not getting accepted to some pro university. I don't know where it was. And she said, well, what I don't understand is why did they let like all those black kids and minority kids in but she can't get in and it's like oh so you're saying that they that she deserves to be there and they don't and I don't think that she realized that what I because at the moment I said does she know she's talking to a black woman right because that's pretty that's pretty blatant to say that and so I love that you're saying uh you have the right to be there so I think that if we start there with saying these students deserve to be here just like the students who come Absolutely. from the Hamptons or who come from the Berkshires right come on now that's what this episode is about we that's a part of changing the narrative mm-hmm. a high quality education for a student who wants to advance themselves 
is a human right bottom line. Right. It's right. not because of your social economic status. It's not because you're a legacy student. My grandpa before and my grandpa went to this institution. It's not because of the color of your skin. You feel like you're entitled to be in this space. And this is how I speak to my students when they come to me and like, I don't know if I belong here. I'm the only one. Uh -uh. Let, let's right. Well, so, so, you know, so it's interesting, Truth, that, that you say that, because I do want to talk about what it feels like for first-gen students since you've worked with them so much. But because here's the thing that I know that first-gens, when they have that question, because I've met plenty of them in my right. teaching time as well, it is hard enough for students who have parents who have gone to college That's right. to navigate a school, yes. uh, academic setting. And so now you're putting on students who whose parents don't have the experience. I think about my children, their their life is so much easier because they have a mom who's been at school forever, ever, 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 ever. Right. Yeah. And so their life is so much easier because I know the steps to tell them to take. I know what happens is if you're having a problem with your instructor, go talk to your instructor. A lot of students don't know that. Right. Even students who come from parents who've gone to school. And so then they find out they get in trouble. So imagine if you're first generation and you can't yeah. talk to your parents about this. Right. You can't talk to sometimes the friends or the people in your neighborhood. So tell us a little bit about what are some of the difficulties that students face? And we're going to start this before our break. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, the difficulties that first generation students face that people who are in academic settings need to be aware of? Absolutely. I think some of the challenges that first-generation college students face is um, oftentimes we talk about this concept of social capital. And social capital are a, a set of skills and insight knowledge. Mm. I be successful and that insight knowledge actually comes from not how intelligent you are, but what are your networks that have given you access to that information. So yeah. take for example, your daughters, they yeah. have access through information as a result of their relationship with you. So the relationship is really the thing that is making um, uh, 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 helping students mm. navigate this experience. So I think that's the first thing is really understanding the power of social capital and what that means. Mm. I, I so love that because the other thing that I think about too, and, and this was my experience as a professor, those kids who come from uh, various backgrounds that had to do with wealth or just a good education system, the difference I would see sometimes in their writing. And sometimes that meant that mom and daddy were probably giving some, you know, feedback on right. it as well. Well, when you're first gen, you may not have that right. disposal to say, hey, mom, can you look over this essay and see if it makes sense or whatever the case may be, right? And so, so even supporting students when they come with that, telling them the inside knowledge, right? Because Absolutely. there's, there's, knowledge that's going to help us be successful if we know the right people to talk to. And I think often what happens based on class, uh, grace, et cetera, sometimes people feel like I can't ask for help. I've got to do this right. on my own. Absolutely. That's really important. That's right. Really important. We're going to come back and continue our conversation because I know there's much more that you want to say about how we can also support first-gen students and, and if there are other things that you want to also highlight in terms of what they deal with when they come to campus. I'd love for our audience to hear that. We'll be right back with the Dismantle Racism Show. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
proven world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be frank about health to advocate for all of us. Hey, everybody. It's Tommy D., the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back with my guest Truth Hunter and we've been talking about first generation students and so before the break Truth you and I were talking about the social capita um, that first gen students bring to the table and we were also just kind of highlighting what are some ways to support first gen students because what are their concerns when they come to school help us help us to understand the mindset of a first gen student so that we know how to support them. Absolutely. I think one, I've been advising first generation college students for over 10 years. And one, there are several, not one, but I'll speak to one narrative that keeps coming up. Am I good enough? Mm. Am I smart enough? Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot in, in, in being able to be in a position of an advisor, um, is an advantageous position because you're not a faculty member in which the student feels like they have to perform or that you're going to grade them. So I really, a lot of first gen students really pour their hearts out to me in a lot of private settings. I think the fear of failing. And feeling that pressure from not only having to prove yourself in the classroom, but also having to prove yourself to your family. So I think a really important aspect of the first gen experience is that you're having a very intensive experience in college that your family has no context around. So you're always kind of straddling and going back and forth with like, I can't miss a step in class. If I ask my professor for help, it might show that it might confirm that I don't belong here. Mm. Right. But then you, your family doesn't fully understand what you're going through. So I think that as a first generation college student, I like that it's called the the word generation is in it mm-hmm. because it's not just about the student. Mm-hmm. It's actually about the family's journey mm-hmm. around this student who is entering into this environment, in, entering into academia, which could, could can conceivably be dramatically different from where they've come from. So, so how I, the schools support that support those students because I remember hearing a story on NPR about, and I don't remember the the, the person's name now, but it was a young man who got two hundred thousand dollars to go to school, and he went to school and then he flunked out his first semester, and he's he was talking about like I didn't feel the support, I didn't know what to do when X Y and Z happened, and it's interesting because. At the time of the show, he was waiting tables. So here was this bright young man with a great future. If he had $200,000, a lot of that was based on academics, right? Right. But he didn't have 
what he felt like he needed. So what do schools yes. need to do to support students? Yeah, so based upon my experience, I was the assistant director of an educational opportunity program at a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. Then I came to Connecticut College in New London. As much as we don't talk about this in academia, relationships are everything. Mm-hmm. Like, like on a whole new level. So when we're bringing our students in, we have to create these relationships at the peer level. So they need a peer immediately who can speak to their um, current circumstances. Mm-hmm. You also need a faculty mentor mm-hmm. who can help affirm who they are academically. And that's really important because oftentimes first-generation students, especially if that identity intersects with being a racially minoritized student, they start to feel like they were accepted because of a quota. That's right. Well, because that's what society tells them. So they have have the narrative from society and then they start believing that narrative. They start believing that. And what a faculty mentor can do, this intervention is really important. The faculty mentor can not only just simply tell them that they belong, the faculty mentor can say, work on this research project with me. I remember at Mount Holyoke, my African-American studies professor, I'll never forget this. He sat down and taught me how to write because I turned in my first paper and I was like, can I have it back? I want to revise it. He was like, no. And I was like, no, I really need to revise it. He was like, well, let me just, let me just read the first and the last paragraph. Uh-huh. And then he goes, ooh. And then he hands me back the paper. And then he goes, wait, I'm going to teach you how to write. Mm. And he sat down and he taught me how to develop my thesis and how to find supporting evidence and how to like organize my, like, I mean, I got into it. Like, I was like, I want to do this paper right now. That's what a faculty member can do. They can give you the skills. They don't just tell you, you can do it. They're like, I'm going to show you. Or, or just mark you 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 off right. now, because look, I have to tell you, I had an experience once where I had a, a student in my class and he could not write and I was appalled. Now, I didn't do what that professor did. That probably would have been a good thing to do, but I was, I, so I give a lot of feedback when, when I'm writing anyway, but what I was appalled as is like, did this school know that this was your writing level when you came in? And you're a junior now. How are they, how is this possible that you're writing at this level? I understand when you come in as a freshman. Right. Yes, we tell students to go to a writing center and all of that, but there there does need to be that person who's going to walk those students through the journey. Because just to say you can't write doesn't help you learn. And, And that's why the faculty mentorship is such a powerful intervention because they really help students build those skills. And when you build a skill set, you build their confidence. And that's when they start to believe that they belong. Okay, so the faculty um, mentorship, Mm -hmm. I know that individual professors can do that. Tell me about when it's structured though, when you- Absolutely. So when I was at Bar College in upstate New York, I created, along with other colleagues, um, a program called Bringing Theory to Practice. And this was specifically to support the retention of first-gen low-income students, um, racially minoritized students in STEM. We made sure that every student had a peer mentor, which we called a coach, and we also had a faculty mentor Mm -hmm. and then we did group mentoring so those three layers are really important you need the you need the group so that you can hear the other narratives oh i'm going through that in my chemistry class too like the same thing happened to me when it was time to partner up all the students left me out because i was visibly the only person of color you know it seems like that but let's talk about that that's that happens all the time right 
that happens all the time. But then they're in this group setting where they're hearing each other's stories. So that's really important, the collective peer mentoring. And then to have that individual um, peer mentor who's two, one or two years ahead of you, who can say, hey, go to this professor for this, or look at my notes from last semester, or that peer mentoring connection is really important. And then like I explained, the faculty connection can come in and really help with building that skill set, which is critical because we don't want to just tell students that they have access to, to, to college. We want to actually give them the skills so that they can manifest their potential, so they can see their potential. I'm just curious, Truth, because I know some people listening here, they're not in, in academia. Right. People who from the community do to support students who might be in college because as you're talking i'm thinking another component would be to hook students up with a local person who can work with them as well but what are your thoughts about that absolutely i think around this conversation around changing the narrative around first generation college students are really important you know affirming who they are as scholars is so important, not just as students who got accepted into a competitive institution, because what's going to end up happening is that the default ideas that I got in because, you know, I'm a racially minoritized student or I'm a first generation college student, but what the community can do is affirm the intelligence, the brilliance, the intellect of our scholars breathe life into that, you know, and, and you can do that regardless if you're a person who has a college degree or not. Take interest in what they study. One thing I appreciated about my father, you know, he always wanted to know about what I wanted to study, even though he may not have had a reference point for it. And I would sit down, I would talk to him about critical social thought and post-colonial theory. Right. And he would be so engaged, engage them intellectually, take them seriously intellectually, so mm. that when they show up in these spaces, they can feel the energy of their voice and know that their contributions are valuable. I want to just say something, since you, you mentioned your father and you being a first generation student, student, we make assumptions about folk who come from first generational families, that their families are not interested in learning what we need to understand is their circumstances may have been different i mean i always talk about this older gentleman from my high school who had a fourth grade education and i mean from my neighborhood um, when i grew up fourth grade education brilliant though that's right and so one of the narratives we can change for my for those who are listening today is that the the first generational students who who um have the opportunity to go to college also have parents uh colleagues or or friends from the neighborhood who are wishing them the best and that goes back to the pressure because truth they're like truth you went to college so you've got to come back that's a whole nother thing that that we can't go we're not going to go back and talk about all the pressure that in and of itself but i do want to say this that also means that there might be a need for some emotional support, like get a counselor when you go to school, get uh, someone you can go to and just talk through, talk to them about what you're feeling. And the other thing I want to say before we quickly go to break is this, it's important for the schools to hear this information that you are sharing. Because if a school doesn't know if professors don't know, professors should be trained on this. This is deep, deep stuff that we're talking about because we're talking about the impact psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, even physically on these students. And we can lose the students if we don't know how to care for them. So I think I think training is necessary. We're going to take a quick break to come back for our final segment, but I would love for when we come back for you to talk about what do first gen students bring to the table a bit? Yes. So we'll be right back with the Dismantle Racism Show. 
What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Aspel, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape driving companies from startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and Intangify your business today. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back with the dismantle racism show truth talk to us about what 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 do first generational students bring to the table so much i am going to first start with a resource in which i'm drawing this work from so the work of tara yoso she has an article that has been very groundbreaking in education called whose culture has capital and she talks about all these forms of capital that aren't typically recognized and acknowledged in higher education that our students bring. But back to what you were saying, when we train faculty and we train staff to see these things, we can begin to leverage the strengths that mm. our students are bringing. It's, they're bringing so much, but it's not being acknowledged and leveraged as valuable. And that's the shift that needs to happen. So mm -hmm. take, for example, if you came from, like I did, a failing K through 12 system, then, and you made it to higher ed, you know something about how to collect resources, how to develop networks. Um, when I was in high school, I was in every college prep program. So I had multiple mentors. So you know how to find resources and you know how to navigate structural barriers. That's a skill. Yes, yes. And, and Yara Tasso refers to that as navigational capital. Right, but so you know what you're saying that's really critical here? Yes. You figured out how to do that, right? There are kids, my kids included, there are certain things they know because that's what they've been taught. They didn't have to navigate it for themselves. Exactly, right? So that becomes a source of knowledge because through that process of trying to figure it out, you're gaining all this knowledge about how to advocate for yourself, how to set goals, how to articulate those goals, right? Because you know no one else is going to do it for you. So that is something that first-generation college students bring to the table, especially if um, English is not their first language. Mm -hmm. So they bring linguistic strengths. Mm -hmm. That's the strength, you know, and oftentimes, you know, unfortunately in our very elitist, US-centric culture, when we hear an accent, mm -hmm. we might, for whatever reason, which is ridiculous, we may not think that person is intelligent just by their accent. Yeah, that's right. But the the beauty of knowing two languages 
is yes, you know two languages, but you know how to think in two different ways culturally. Right. So you know how to think about problems from different perspectives because when you learn a language, you also learn how to think differently. Right. right. So our students bring that with them. Mm -hmm. Linguistic capital, mm -hmm. you know, and they bring aspirational capital. They know what it means to go after a dream and to not have everything lined up in place for you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and when I'm with first generation students, that's that inspiration that I feel yeah. that you're literally building something that no one has built. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have to give them credit for that. So I would I highlight those, those people, but, but we need those people when we're working on projects and all That's of that, right. because they're going to think outside of the box. Absolutely. But we, as educators, as mentors, as, uh, as advisors, we have to help them to connect the dots. Mm. They're just doing what they need to do to be successful. They're not thinking it's knowledge. They're not thinking it's cultural capital. They're actually thinking like, I'm coming in with a deficit. We have to help them to translate this. Right, right. And, I love that. When you turn on that light bulb, it's, it's, it's over. It's yeah. over. They are catapulting to the next level. There are no limits to what they can do when they know what their strengths are. And also when they um, when the expectations are clear on what they need to work on, too. Right. Right. And speaking of expectations, I think it's important for professors and teachers to have expectations of their students, because one of the things that I know happened when I used to work in a high school. Teachers would often be OK with a student making a C. And I would say, but if they can do better, you, you shouldn't be okay with that. And I had to teach the students too. Don't think that this is great when they tell you, oh, it's great. You got to sit in here. No, you can do better. That's you, right. But if you can't, I understand that. But a lot of them could. If you tell me, I had students who would miss days and days and days of school, will come to school on a day that there was an exam and get an A. Right. That means that you have a capability there, right? And so. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about it's important for the professors as well to take an interest in the stories of these kids and maybe for professors to write a syllabus that's inclusive of other ways of learning or showing your learning Absolutely. rather than just being strictly academic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And some of those resources do exist. I know within the context of the University of Connecticut, there are trainings. Oftentimes they're not mandatory. So it's usually the professors, the ones who always go to the extra mile for their students will go to those workshops and figure out how can I develop a syllabus that is in tune with the needs of first generation college students, low income students, racially minoritized students. There is a wealth of research out there about that. But what we need to do is we need to bring that information from the books and we need to put it into practice. And that is, is, what's, is what's critical. So I do know that um, there are a lot of efforts to train faculty right now on um, a lot of these things, but the challenge is that oftentimes it's the choir who, and, and there are um, programs that exist where they can go through a whole faculty development program. Right now, I am on a committee where um, STEM faculty are being trained in, in, in equity-minded practices, mm -hmm. and they made a commitment for a whole academic year to do this. And you know, all these things. And it's but, important. There, but they're the exception and, and make this exactly yeah. it, it because it's just like when I talk to people about um you know anti-racism training. You can't just go to one course and figure right. all this out. And so when I'm hearing you talk about this, there's a need to be trained so that people understand what their stereotypes are. Right. How those or their implicit biases, as I you uh uh, have in your bio about teaching about that it is important for us to know what our thinking is. And some of us could have come from a similar background and still have that thinking Absolutely. that's not good. The narratives that we hold 
about these students. Well, Truth, it has been such a delight to have you on here. And, and I hope, uh, well, I know my listeners got something from what we've discussed today. And I'd love for the listeners to write in and to share uh, your thoughts about that. Because what you've talked about is you've talked about the narrative. You've talked about how to change that narrative. And you've given us a little bit of the insight with what the student was feeling. And so we need to be able to support our students who are trying to do the best that they can do and to navigate systems that they're uh, unfamiliar with. So I do want to thank you, uh, Truth, for being on on the show. Um, And someone is commenting, so great to hear Truth speaking with so much power. And I want to thank Benjamin for sending in uh, that comment. Um, Truth, it is always a delight to talk with you and to hear about what you're doing. I'm so grateful that you had the support you needed when you attended Mount Holyoke, because look at what we would have lost. Look mm-hmm. at all of the brilliance we would have lost if you, if you, for some reason, had gone another path. And so you are an example with why we need to do the work that we have to do to support First Gen. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your kind words. I appreciate that. Well, I want to thank my listening audience, and I want to invite you to stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. I also want to just invite you to make today a great day. Choose wisely what you will do this day. Choose who you will support. Choose the support you will receive. Make it a priority to share love, hope, compassion, and peace today. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, bye for now. Are you a high-achieving, growth-oriented leader? Are you interested in developing your authentic leadership while creating a healthy, inclusive workplace? Hi, I'm Dr. Mara Bronco, host of The Hard Skills on talkradio.nyc at 1 p.m. Eastern on Fridays, where we discuss how leaders develop the hard skills needed to make a greater impact. We interview experts, have live coaching, and tackle these challenges. Listen to The Hard Skills on Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Passionate about the conversation around racism, 
Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 